welcome back to Duralex Said Legs. I'm Alyssa and today I will be conducting the interview on my own as Anna has tested positive for COVID yesterday and she is currently stuck in quarantine. Hi guys, it's me, Anna. I'm here from COVID quarantine at the moment, um, hence why you will not be hearing from me in this episode. But Alyssa did a really good job and therefore I hope you enjoyed anyway. And we will see you on the next one. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. And while we're on the topic of COVID-19, today's episode concerns the same topic and it's called the global COVID-19 response and its implications on human rights. We're going to discuss this with Professor Dr. Bridget Toops a university professor and lecturer at University of Groningen, who is also an expert on health law here in the Netherlands. And together we will discuss the implications of health law during the pandemic, what the World Health Organization is, the effect of the pandemic on human rights, and also we will briefly touch on the topic of the right to mental health. So if any of these topics are of interest to you, then make sure you give this episode a listen and we'll see you at the outro. And lastly, if you're interested in a research position or in aiding Dr. Tubes in any of her projects, make sure to listen until the end of this episode where we will ask her how you can directly contact her and how you can get involved if health law interests you. So thank you for being here with us. It's an honor to have you on our podcast and hopefully today we will be discovering a new topic together as health law for us LLB students at least is not a topic that we usually get to discuss. So thank you for for participating. It's very important to us. We're going to start with the first question, which is, could you please introduce yourself to the listeners who may not know you? And could you explain what your research expertise is? Thank you for the kind invitation, Alisa and Anna. It's a pleasure to be here in this podcast. Uh, my name is Brigitte Tubus, as you know, and I hold the chair Health Law in a Global Context at the Faculty of Law of the University of Groningen. Um, I have a PhD on the right to health, so I published uh, a book on the right to health in the late 1990s. And since then, I have devoted my career to studying the role of human rights and international standards more generally in the field of health. And I've been addressing many topics, including um, access to healthcare for vulnerable groups, for example, the role of human rights in health systems to the definition of global health law. Thank you for your answer. Our second question is, if you could maybe explain in a bit more detail, what is global health law? How did it develop and what is its scope? Thank you for that question. And I think it's a very uh, good and interesting question. What is global health law? And you will get different answers from different scholars. So this is my answer. I see it as an emerging branch of public international law. We can see the field of public international law as a field that is growing and that has more and more branches that also grow. So we have many branches, including international economic law, international humanitarian law, and global health law is then one of the perhaps newer branches of, of international law. 
You also asked me how global health law developed. And what we see is that the origins of global health law can be traced back to the 19th century, when nations increasingly sought collaboration to prevent the spread of infectious diseases across borders. And what we saw emerging uh, since the 19th century is states agreeing on the adoption of sanitary regulations, which culminated in the adoption of the international health regulations, which we have since 2005. And what was also an important moment in history was the establishment of the World Health Organization right after the Second World War in 1948. Thank you for that answer. Could you maybe please also explain a bit what is the difference between national health law and international health law? From what I know about this is that international health law deals with global issues obviously like what you mentioned infectious diseases and stuff that can transgress borders and national law deals with rather national issues but maybe if there are other differences you can further develop on this thank you another really interesting question may i propose a different approach to this my proposal is that we see health law as an integrated field containing or addressing both domestic and international law and dimensions. So you cannot deal with health law issues at the domestic level or with health issues without uh, engaging with the international standards. So I feel that health law is a sort of field that engages with many branches of the law, both international and domestic, and that we should not separate these fields so strictly. Thank you. So what would you say are the transnational issues and how are they tackled by health law? Thank you for the question about the uh, transnational uh, dimensions of uh, global health law, if you like. I think we see the transnational dimensions of global health law very much appearing uh, in the field of infectious disease control. Infectious diseases cross borders, as we have seen so painfully during the COVID-19 crisis. And to that aim, the World Health Organization adopted the international health regulations in 2005. This set of regulations is binding for all member states of the World Health Organization. So it's a unique instrument in the sense that member states of the WHO are bound by these standards without having formally consented to this document. So it's not a treaty, but it's still binding on states. And would you say there is a right to health on a global or international level as of now? Is there a right to health? at the international level. And my answer to that is definitely yes, there is a right to health. And the right to health is set forth in a wide range of international and regional human rights treaties. The first codification of the right to health we find in the constitution of the World Health Organization. That is to say in the preamble of this constitution that was adopted in 1948 and that marked the establishment of the WHO. And that preamble recognizes for the first time on the international level uh, the existence of health as a human right. 
And that language inspired the adoption of right to health standards in the human rights treaties that were adopted gradually thereafter. And the most authoritative right to health provision is perhaps Article 12 of the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights that was adopted in 1966 and entered into force in 1967. And Article 12 recognizes the right to the highest attainable standard of health. And it's a very powerful and authoritative provision and it's further explained in General Comment 14 that was adopted in the year 2000. We also see the right to health in a number of other human rights treaties, including the Women's Convention, the Convention on the Rights of the Child, and the Convention on the Rights of Disabled Persons, the CRPD. So the right to health is widely recognized at the international level, and we also find it at the regional level, for example, in the European Social Charter. And by the way, it's also interesting to look at domestic constitutions where we see that many constitutions have adopted a right to health. Thank you for your answer. How could this right to health be developed and also promoted, especially nowadays in the last few years when we have seen the rise of diseases and other problematic factors, which obviously make the promotion of this right more difficult, such as maybe global warming or war and other types of conflicts? That's a really great question again. And what we see is that our health is not decided solely by the extent to which we can access healthcare services. We are, as humans, very much the product of our environment. So you can say that uh, where we grow up where we go to school, what we consume, where we work, all these conditions are very decisive for our health. And this understanding we also find in this general comment 14, this explanatory document to Article 12 of the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, that gives this authoritative explanation of the right to health. And it says, in paragraph four, that the right to health is not confined to healthcare, very important, and that it embraces a wide range of socio-economic factors, and that it extends to underlying determinants of health, food and nutrition, housing, access to safe and potable water, and so on. The complication here is then, how do you delineate the right to health in relation to other human rights? where does the right to health end and does the right to housing begin for example but perhaps we can also see that these rights reinforce each other and that their scope to some extent overlaps in the sense that there's normative overlap between the various economic and social rights you also suggested maybe armed conflict and what we also see is that the right to health applies during armed conflict. And it's especially applicable during non-international armed conflict, because that is where states have the legal obligation to realize the right to health on their territory. And it can be claimed that during an armed conflict, an emergency, they have minimum core obligations to realize the right to health on their territory. And in such situations, we see an interaction between the right to health 
and human rights standards more generally with the standards under international humanitarian law. And looking at international humanitarian law and the standards of Geneva Conventions, you see many provisions that recognize or stipulate the undisturbed delivery of healthcare services. And what we've seen in the recent Ukraine crisis and armed conflict is that this principle, the undisturbed delivery of healthcare services, was violated on a fragrant scale. So hospitals were bombs. And yeah, I, I would argue that that is a, a gross violation, a very serious violation of the right to health and of the standards under international humanitarian law. Thank you for your explanation. Your answer actually kind of answered my seventh question, which was how are human rights and health law interconnected and why is this important to guarantee the quality of life? But maybe if you also have something to add to this, we could further develop on this issue. Yeah, no, absolutely. We There's a lot more one can say about this. Um, you can say that health and human rights are connected in many intricate ways. And we address many dimensions of this in our new handbook, Health and Human Rights, that has just come out with Intersentia. And that is also the book that we use in our LLM course, International Health Law. If I may give some dimensions where human rights are important in a health context, we see that human rights offer protection in healthcare settings, addressing the patient-doctor relationship, protecting the patient in such settings. But human rights also offer protection, and perhaps I've already said that to some extent, against other health threats, such as unhealthy living conditions, and global warming, perhaps, and environmental pollution. What is very illustrative in this context is the case law of the European Court of Human Rights. As we know, the European Court of Human Rights only deals with the civil and political rights in the European Convention of Human Rights. So it doesn't deal expressly with the right to health, but it engages a lot with health-related issues. And what you see in the case law is that the court has implicitly recognized the right to health through other standards. For example, the right to privacy and family life under Article 8 of the European Convention on Human Rights. Yeah, this is actually very interesting because it's very important to see how we sometimes, obviously we do need specific legislation, especially at an international level, but how you can also kind of interpret already existing provisions in order to comprise the right to health, for example, like in the case of the uh, European Court of Human Rights. So thank you for that explanation. And it's definitely very interesting to see how human rights provisions actually evolve. Yeah, perhaps it's good to explain or add that health is protected by many rights. So not only by the right to health, but that in the context of health, we deal with many health related rights the right to health, but also, for example, the right to food, the right to housing, but also the right to privacy, physical integrity, but freedom of movement, access, a right to information can also be important. Is there a right to mental health or something similar? Well, that's a really nice question. And in fact, my PhD candidate, Natalie Schuch, is investigating this very issue. 
Yes, I would confirm, and I'm not uh, as big an expert as she is, but I would confirm that there is a right to mental health. We already see that explicitly in Article 12 of the International Covenant on Economic and Social Rights that talks about the right to the highest attainable standard of physical and mental health, if I'm correct. So there is a right to mental health, and mental health is clearly a dimension of good health. And actually the definition of health in the constitution in the, of the World Health Organization also talks about physical, mental and social well-being. So clearly mental health is on the agenda in the international standards and explicitly in international human rights law. But then the next question is, of course, what are the implications of a, of a right to mental health? And what do we as individuals have a right to? What are we entitled to? What should states do to guarantee our mental health? It's a difficult question. What I see is that a lot of scholars and students are interested in this topic and are working on this. So I'm expecting some more clear answers to this difficult question uh, over the years to come. Thank you for your answer. And now we're on question nine, which is firstly, even though most individuals listening to this podcast will know what the event in question is about, obviously, because we've all lived it in the past more than two years. Could you please quickly describe what happened during the COVID-19 pandemic, maybe from a global law standpoint, not necessarily in the sense of actual events that took place? Well, perhaps it's good to uh, remember that in late December 2019, um, this new coronavirus emerged from Wuhan and expanded through China and to the rest of the world. And then subsequently, the World Health Organization declared that there was a public health emergency of international concern on the 30th of January 2020. And later, in March 2020, it declared that there was a pandemic. And um, yeah, the declaration of a public health emergency of international concern is a legal fact because there is a basis for that in the so-called international health regulations that we discussed before. So after the declaration of this public health emergency of international concern, the World Health Organization issued recommendations towards China which also has a basis in the international health regulations. And then China uh, worked with the WHO uh, to, to address the pandemic. What we saw in this context and what we see in the international health regulations is that the WHO, based on the regulations, has little power to, uh, to address state performance. It cannot impose sanctions and WHO has or the international health regulations have been criticized for failing to impose these kind of sanctions uh, when states do not follow up, also in relation to the previous Ebola crisis in Western Africa. But you must also realize that it's difficult to balance such things because countries may be willing to collaborate with the WHO because they do not have to fear sanctions. So you can see it's a delicate balance between collaboration and imposing sanctions. And these things also play a role in the current debate about whether a so-called pandemic treaty should be adopted in addition to the existing international health regulations. 
But what is also important with these international health regulations is that um, these international health regulations also offer rules for normal times when there is no pandemic. They call on states to uh, be prepared for pandemics, the so-called pandemic preparedness. States, on the basis of the international health regulations, have to develop their core capacities, a set of capacities, legal, technical, other, uh, that have to be in place in a state uh, in order to be able to respond to a new um, outbreak of an infectious disease. This is very important and it's often overlooked. And you can see that it's very important uh, for the world that all states countries around the world have their core capacities in place. If a country very far away from us is not prepared, this we have seen, then uh, we will also or we may also be affected. Thank you for your answer. You also mentioned the World Health Organization again, which we have been talking about in this interview. And I wanted to ask this, which isn't included in the question, but just out of curiosity, maybe. So you have mentioned that the treaty of the World Health Organization is binding and that it is a binding obligation on states, but there is no enforcement mechanism on the part of WHO. Is that true? So the international health regulations that we currently have are a set of regulations that are binding on states through their membership of the World Health Organization. So because nations are a member of the World Health Organization, they are automatically bound by the international health regulations. The regulations do not offer the possibility for the WHO to impose sanctions on states when states do not comply with the regulations. This may be seen as a shortcoming of uh, the regulations and this may be one of the reasons why at the international level there is a discussion about the adoption of a so-called pandemic treaty and this pandemic treaty would then be a treaty that states would have to ratify and become a formal party to and that could give the instrument and the monitoring body more power to intervene when there is another crisis. And this pandemic treaty would then be the second treaty that is adopted within the framework of the World Health Organization. So on the basis of Article 19 of the Constitution of the World Health Organization, WHO can adopt treaties. But thus far, since 1948, WHO has only adopted one treaty. And this is the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control that was adopted in 2003. So since 2003, we have this one single treaty addressing tobacco control. And now will we also have a treaty that will address pandemics? Thank you. Maybe if you could please develop more on what are the WHO standards for health law and what role did this organization play in the regulation of standards for the COVID-19 pandemic? If you want to know what standards the WHO can adopt, you must look in the constitution of the World Health Organization and you find the possibility to adopt binding instruments in Articles 19 and 21 of the WHO constitution. In addition to that, the WHO can also adopt recommendations and it has adopted lots of recommendations, but it has adopted very few 
binding instruments. So I already mentioned the framework convention on tobacco control and the international health regulations. That there is also another set of regulations, but it's not so relevant for the context of uh, disease control. Thank you. And considering the fact that it can impose these kinds of treaties and you know international laws on states, can international health laws or recommendations potentially have an impact on state sovereignty? Because obviously in the case of a global crisis like we have seen in the past few years, states are presumed to be willing to act in the greater good. But as we have seen in the case of the COVID pandemic, many states refuse to comply with international standards by claiming that they can deal with the problem better through their own means. And maybe they were motivated by economic factors or maybe social pressure from their citizens. But what my question is, do these standards often clash with the sovereignty of states? Yes, they might clash with the sovereignty of states. But my remark in that respect is, so what? I find it very regretful that states respond in this way. And I find it a little complacent to think that you can do it better on your own. We have seen how infectious diseases can become a global concern and how they can have a devastating effect on societies, not only from a health perspective, but also um, societal, economic, and so on. The World Health Organization over the past 70 years of its existence has built tremendous expertise. And I think it's complacent to think that as a country, you know it better than the World Health Organization. The World Health Organization is not the perfect body, but it is the best we have. And in that sense, I think we should cherish the World Health Organization. And in fact, I think much more money should go to this organization because uh, states do not donate that much money to the organization. And what we also see is that a lot of money that goes to the budget of the World Health Organization is given by private donors and is then earmarked. So it cannot be allocated in the way World Health Organization may want to allocate it. Yeah, that's very interesting. I actually didn't know the fact that private donors can choose where their donations are used because that defeats the purpose on the World Health Organization prioritizing what is most important for health law, for global health law. Precisely. And what we also see in what is maybe regretful from a legal perspective, now that you talk about health law and the World Health Organization, what I think is regretful, if I may make a critical point about the WHO, it has adopted very little law over the past of the 70 years of its existence. It has adopted uh, two binding regulations and one treaty. And yeah, that is uh, disappointing. And I I hope that uh, students listening uh, will, uh, as uh, lawyers, have the ambition to work for the World Health Organization in the future and that they succeed in doing so. And maybe getting worse standards adopted. (laughs) And if you ask me what, uh, what standards do we need, there has there is now this talk about a pandemic treaty but in addition to the treaty uh, the existing treaty on tobacco the framework convention on tobacco control i would argue that a treaty uh, addressing diets food and alcohol are also really important for many reasons 
and maybe also some medications and that can be very dangerous and addictive also in treatments. Yes, but for that we also have the international drug control regime. Uh, these are UN treaties that are uh, worth looking into if that is the concern indeed, yes. Thank you very much for your answer. Now moving on to question 12, which relates more to limiting human rights in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. On this podcast, we have previously talked about the rule of law in several episodes, and we know that it is a core concept which basically protects democracy, individual fundamental and human rights, and equality. So as human rights are also protected by the rule of law, and we know that human rights have been limited during the COVID-19 pandemic in order to protect the health of the citizens, how would you say that the rule of law was affected in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic altogether? Thank you for that uh, important question. What we see is that across the board, measures taken by governments to address the pandemic impacted on human rights. So it was a reality that governments had to restrict human rights in order to contain the spread of the disease. If you think about a quarantine or uh, an evening clock, uh, these measures impact on our freedom of movement, our privacy, potentially our physical integrity and so on. Sometimes these measures were necessary, but sometimes governments went too far to the extent that they introduced limitations for the sake of strengthening their authority. So they were looking for a justification for their use of power. And that is, of course, a very undesirable outcome. I think it underlines how important human rights are in such contexts and also knowledge and understanding about human rights and how they can be limited. And therefore, I'm extremely grateful that uh, we have human rights programs in Groningen where we can all study this together. And we pay much attention to this topic also in our courses. Yeah, I think it's important to see that we see things through a very westernized perspective. I'm from the EU as well, so obviously I only experience the EU reality of things and the Western reality of things. But we have to acknowledge that in many other places, human rights weren't just limited in order to protect citizens, but this was also taken advantage for, as you mentioned. And when I think about human rights being limited in the course of the pandemic, I only think about quarantine or stuff like that. But it's a reality for people living in more authoritarian parts of the world. Yes, that's true. But I think we saw an opposite trend in, for example, the Netherlands, where there was much opposition against all the measures taken, which were to a great extent very reasonable. And what I felt sometimes was that the right to health was not central in these decisions and also not in the thinking of society. People put the right to privacy and related rights very much at the center of the debate. Is this measure infringing on my autonomy, my privacy, my physical integrity? Whereas the starting point or maybe the ultimate goal was the realization of the right to health. And sometimes autonomy, to some extent, has to be set aside in order to secure the health of society. And that realization sometimes could be a bit more prevalent in Dutch society, I think. Sometimes we have to surrender a bit of our freedom 
in order to save our health. Yeah, exactly. Thank you very much for explaining this. Now we're moving on to question 13, which relates to the cooperation of governments in helping the COVID crisis come to an end. So this was not the first time that governments interacted due to a crisis. Obviously, as you mentioned, there have been other transnational issues related to other pandemics or global health crisis. But can you please elaborate how did governments interact accordingly in order to dim down the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic and did this elevate the effectiveness of the global response and maybe is there something that they could have done differently in order to bring about a better result maybe more cooperation or you know coming to consensus more easily yes it's a very good question and I struggle a bit to to find a very good answer to this question I would say yes collaboration is extremely important and the answer to this collaboration is the World Health Organization, the European Union. So countries should all come together within these international organizations and strengthen these organizations so as to enhance this collaboration. So the, these international organizations have been established to foster the collaboration. So yes, uh, again, I would say let's cherish these organizations so that we can work well together as nations. Thank you very much. What are some notable achievements of health law in recent history, aside from the COVID-19 pandemic? You also mentioned the tobacco regulations. Maybe you could develop more on that. Yes, thank you. That's also an important question. So the COVID-19 crisis is about an infectious disease and curbing the spread of an infectious disease. But we should not forget there's, there's also a different type of disease that is very prevalent around the world, which is chronic so-called non-communicable diseases. So these diseases are not communicable, are not infectious, but they affect large groups in society. They affect many people and often prematurely. We are talking about cancer, diabetes, respiratory and cardiovascular disease, which pose a huge burden on the health of society. So you can also say that these uh, diseases are on the rise and also very much in low and middle income countries. So not only in high income countries, and they are very costly for governments to address because treatment for these diseases is very costly. What is an important piece of information when it comes to these diseases is that these diseases are to some extent, to a considerable extent, I should say, preventable in the sense that four so-called behavioral risk factors are at the root of these diseases. So, these diseases are very much the result of our living environment and our consumption patterns. And when it comes to these consumption patterns, the World Health Organization insists on four important consumption patterns, if you like, that are very decisive here, which is smoking, unhealthy diets, excessive use of alcohol and lack of physical exercise. So these four risk factors need to be addressed in order to reduce uh, the incidence of chronic non-communicable diseases. And you can do that through law. 
And the World Health Organization has thus far only addressed smoking through its framework Convention on Tobacco Control. But the ambition could be that you also address alcohol and unhealthy diets through treaties. And why would this be important? The Framework Convention on Tobacco Control is a very open-ended treaty. But the reality is that this treaty has been very impactful in many countries. Many countries have adjusted their legislation in order to comply with the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, but also to adopt stricter tobacco legislation because they thought it was important in the light of this treaty. And an important provision in this treaty is Article 5.3 that prohibits governments when making tobacco legislation to talk to the tobacco industry. And that provision prevents member states, states parties, from talking to the industry too much. And that article has been very influential also in the Netherlands because government in principle no longer talks to the tobacco industry. It would be great to have a treaty that stipulates that government should not talk to the food and beverages industry when making law and policy in the field of food. It would be beneficial if government doesn't talk to the alcohol industry anymore. So for that reason, we want such a treaty. Thank you very much for your answer and we hope to see these changes being implemented at every necessary level in the following years in order to protect the right of health and thank you for answering our questions and now our final question does not relate to the subject matter of health law as much but it is rather a question about if you potentially have any open positions for students who are interested in helping you with research related to health law or other similar topics and if yes, how can such students contact you if this is a possibility? Yeah, thank you. Well, the Groningen Center for Health Law, firstly, has a student blog. So if you would like to write a blog post, then you are welcome to do so and to contact my colleague, Jamie Behrens, or you contact me and I will um, refer you to Ms. Behrens. And if you're interested in working with us, you can also contact uh, me and uh, to see if you can help with uh, projects or for example our social media so we engage with students on a frequent basis and we welcome you contacting us thank you very much okay thank you very much for participating this has been very a very informative interview and thank you for your time and we will add your email address in the description so students can contact you Thank you, my pleasure. It's been a pleasure to talk to you and I wish you lots of luck with your blog and your further studies. Thank you so much for listening to this episode until the end and a very big thank you to Dr. Tubes for helping us with a very special interview. If the topic of health law interests you, make sure to contact Dr. Tubes in order to further get involved. Today's episode was conducted online, which is why the sound quality isn't as good as in other episodes, but I certainly hope we managed to spark your interest and offer you some very valuable information on this very interesting topic. 
This is actually the last interview that we're going to conduct this season of Duralex Setlex with the professor. And we really hope that you enjoyed it. And we would like to thank both our listeners as well as our guests for taking part in this very important project for us and helping people stay educated in the most interesting and important matters of international law and international relations. Thank you so much for tuning in again. And we will see you in two weeks. Bye.